Chapter 37 of The Deluge, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Deluge, Volume 2, by Henrik Sienkiewicz, translated by Jeremiah Curtin, 1835-1906. Chapter 37 Zagwaba, when he stood before the hetman, did not answer his joyous greeting, but put his hands behind his back, pouted his lips, and looked on him like a just but stern judge. Sapieha was pleased when he saw that mien, for he expected some pleasantry, and said, How are you, old rogue? Why twist your nose as if you had found some unvirtuous odour? In the whole camp of Sapieha it smells of hashed meat and cabbage. Why, tell me. Because the Swedes have cut up a great many cabbage heads. There you are, you are already criticising us. It is a pity they did not cut you up too. I was with a leader under whom we are the cutters, not the cut. The hangman take you, if they had even clipped your tongue. Then I should have nothing to proclaim Sapir his victory with. Ah, Lord Brother, spare me. The majority already forget my service to the country and belittle me altogether. I know, too, that there are many who make a great outcry against my person. Still, had it not been for that rabble of a general militia, affairs might have gone differently. They say that I have neglected the enemy for night feasting, but the whole commonwealth has not been able to resist that enemy. Zagoba was somewhat moved at the words of the hetman, and answered, Such is the custom with us, always to put the blame on the leader. I am not the man to speak evil of feasting, for the longer the day, the more needful the feast. Pan Czarniecki is a great warrior. Still, according to my head, he has this defect that he gives his troops for breakfast, for dinner, and for supper nothing but Swede's flesh. He is a better leader than cook. But he acts ill, for from such food war may soon become disgusting to the best cavaliers. Was Czarnetsky very much enraged at me? No, not very. In the beginning he showed a great change, but when he discovered that the army was unbroken, he said at once, the will of God, not the might of men. That is nothing. Any general may lose a battle. If we had Sapiehas only in the land, we should have a country in which every man would be an Aristides. For Pan Czarniecki, I would not spare my blood, answered Sapieha. Every other would have lowered me so as to exalt himself and his own glory, especially after a fresh victory. But he is not that kind of man. I will say nothing against him but this, that I am too old for such service as he expects of soldiers, and especially for those baths which he gives the army. Then are you glad to return to me? Glad and not glad, for I hear of feasting for an hour, but somehow I don't see it. We will sit down to the table this minute, but what is Czarniecki undertaking now? He is going to Great Poland to help those poor people. From there he will march against Steinbock and to Prussia, hoping to get cannon and infantry from Danzig. The citizens of Danzig are worthy people, 
and give a shining example to the whole Commonwealth. We shall meet Charnyetsky at Warsaw, for I shall march there, but will stop a little first around Lublin. Then have the Swedes besieged Lublin again? Unhappy place! I know not how many times it has been in the hands of the enemy. There is a deputation here now from Lubelsk, and they will appear with a petition asking me to save them. But, as I have letters to dispatch to the king and the hetmans, they must wait a while. I will go gladly to Lublin, for there the fair heads are comely beyond measure, and sprightly. When a woman of that place is cutting bread, and puts the loaf against herself, the crust on the lifeless bread blushes from delight. O oh, Turk! Your worthiness, as a man advanced in years, cannot understand this, but I, like May, must let my blood out yet. But you are older than I. Only in experience, not in years. I have been able, conservare juventutem meam, to preserve my youth, and more than one man has envied me that power. Permit me, your worthiness, to receive the Lubelsk deputation. I will promise to aid them at once. Let the poor men comfort themselves before we comfort the poor women. That is well, said the hetman. Then I will write the letters. And he went out. Immediately after were admitted the deputies from Lubelsk, whom Zagwaba received with uncommon dignity and seriousness. He promised assistance on condition that they would furnish the army with provisions, especially with every kind of drink. When the conditions were settled, he invited them in the name of the voyevoda to supper. They were glad, for the army marched that night toward Lublin. The hetman himself was active beyond measure, for it was a question with him of effacing the memory of the Sandomierge defeat by some military success. The siege began, but advanced rather slowly. During this time, Kmichitz was learning from Vovodyovsky to work with the sabre, and made uncommon progress. Pan Mihal, knowing that his art was to be used against Boguslav's neck, held back no secret. Often, too, they had better practice, for, approaching the castle, they challenged to single combat the Swedes, many of whom they slew. Soon, Kmichitz had made such advance that he could meet Pan Yan on equal terms. No one in the whole army of Sapieha could stand before him. Then such a desire to try Boguslav seized his soul that he was barely able to remain at Lublin, especially since the spring brought back to him strength and health. His wounds had healed, he ceased to spit blood, life played in him as of old, and fire gleamed in his eyes. At first the louder men looked at him frowningly, but they dared in not attack, for Vorodyovsky held them with iron hand, and later when they considered his acts and his deeds, they were reconciled completely, and his most inveterate enemy, Yuzva Butrim, said, Kmichitz is dead. Babinich is living. Let him live. The Lubelsk garrison surrendered at last, to the great delight of the army. Then Sapieha moved his squadrons toward Warsaw. On the road they received tidings that Jan Kazimir himself, with the hetmans and a fresh army, was advancing to aid them. News came too from Czarniecki, who was marching to the capital from Great Poland. 
the war scattered through the whole country was gathering at warsaw as a cloud scattered in the sky gathers and thickens to give birth to a storm with thunders and lightnings sapieha marched through zelechov garvolin and minsk to the shedlitz highway to join the general militia of podlaski panian took command of this multitude for though living in lubelsk he was near the boundary of podlaski and was known to all the nobles and greatly esteemed by them as one of the most famous knights in the commonwealth in fact he soon changed that nobility gallant by nature into a squadron second in no way to regular troops meanwhile they moved from minsk forward to warsaw very hastily so as to stop at praga one day fair weather favoured the march from time to time may showers sped past cooling the ground and settling the dust but on the whole the weather was marvellously fair not too hot not too cold the eye saw far through the transparent air from minsk they went mounted the wagons and cannon were to follow next day an immense eagerness reigned in the regiments the dense forests on both sides of the whole road were ringing with echoes of military songs the horses nodded as a good omen the squadrons regularly and in order flowed on one after the other like a river shining and mighty for sapieha led twelve thousand men besides the general militia the captains leading the regiments were gleaming in their polished cuirasses the red flags waved like gigantic flowers above the heads of the knights the sun was well toward its setting when the first squadron that of lauda marching in advance beheld the towers of the capital at sight of this a joyful shout tore from the breasts of the soldiers warsaw warsaw that shout flew like thunder through all the squadrons and for some time was to be heard over two miles of road the word warsaw warsaw many of sapieha's knights had never been in the capital many of them had never seen it therefore the sight made an uncommon impression on them involuntarily all reined in their horses some removed their caps others made the sign of the cross tears streamed from the eyes of others and they stood in silent emotion all at once sapieha came out from the rear ranks on a white horse and began to fly along the squadrons gentlemen cried he in a piercing voice we are here first to us luck to us honour we will drive the swedes out of the capital we'll drive them we'll drive them we'll drive them and there rose a sound and a thunder some shouted continually we'll drive them others cried strike whoso has manhood others against them the dog brothers the rattle of sabres was mingled with the shouts of the knights eyes flashed lightning and from under fierce moustaches teeth were gleaming sapieha himself was sputtering like a pine torch all at once he raised his baton and cried follow me near praga the voivoda restrained the squadron and commanded a slow march the capital rose more and more clearly out of the bluish distance towers were outlined in a long line on the azure of the sky the red many-storied roofs of the old city were gleaming in the evening light 
the Lithuanians had never seen anything more imposing in their lives than those white lofty walls pierced with multitudes of narrow windows, those walls standing like lofty swamp reeds over the water. The houses seemed to grow some out of others, higher and still higher, but above that dense and close mass of walls with windows and roofs, pointed towers pierced the sky. Those of the soldiers who had been in the capital previously, either at an election or on private affairs, explained to the others what each pile meant and what name it bore. Zagwoba, especially as a person of experience, told all to the louder men, and they listened to him eagerly, wondering at his words and the city itself. Look at that tower in the very centre of Warsaw. That is the citadel of the king. Oh, that I could live as many years as I have eaten dinners at the king's table. I would twist Methuselah into a ram's horn. The king had no nearer confidence than me. I could choose among starosta ships as among nuts, and give them away as easily as hobnails. I have given promotion to multitudes of men, and when I came in, senators used to bow to me to the girdle in Cossack fashion. I fought duels also in presence of the king, for he loved to see me at work. The marshal of the palace had to close his eyes. That is a tremendous building, said Rochowalski, and to think that these dogs have it all in hand. And they plunder terribly, added Zagwaba. I hear that they even take columns out of the walls and send them to Sweden. These columns are of marble and other valuable stones. I shall not recognize the dear corners. Various writers justly describe this castle as the eighth wonder of the world. The King of France has a respectable palace, but it is a fool in comparison with this one. And that other tower over there near it, on the right? That is St. Jan. There is a gallery from the castle to it. I had a vision in that church, for I remained behind once after Vespers. I heard a voice from the arches crying, Zagwoba, there will be war with such a son, the Swedish king, and great calamities will follow. I was running with all my breath to the king to tell him what I had heard, when the primate caught me by the neck with his crozier. Don't tell follies, said he. You were drunk. That other church, just at the side, belongs to the Jesuit college. The third tower at a distance is the law courts, the fourth at the right is the marshals, and that green roof is the Dominicans. I could not name them all, even if I could wield my tongue as well as I do my sabre. It must be that there is not another such city in the world, said one of the soldiers. That is why all nations envy us, answered Zagwaba. And that wonderful pile on the left of the castle? Behind the Bernardines? Yes. That is the Rajayovsky Palace, formerly the Kazanovsky. It is considered the ninth wonder of the world, but there is a plague on it, for in those walls began the misfortune of the Commonwealth. How is that? asked a number of voices. When the vice-chancellor, Radzeyovsky, began to dispute and quarrel with his wife, the king took her part. You know, gentlemen, what people said of this, and it is true that the vice-chancellor thought that his wife was in love with the king, and the king with her. Then afterward, through hatred, he fled to the Swedes, and war began. 
To tell the truth, I was in the country at the moment and did not see the end of the affair. I got it from hearsay. But I know this, that she made sweet eyes, not at the king, but at someone else. At whom? Zagoba began to twirl his moustaches. At him to whom all are hurrying like ants to honey. But it does not beseem me to mention his name, for I have always hated boastfulness. Besides, the man has grown old, and from sweeping out the enemy of the country, I am worn as a broom. But once there was no greater beauty and love-maker than I. Let Rochkowalski... Here Zagwaba saw that by no means could Roch remember those times. Therefore he waved his hand and said, But what does he know of this affair? Then he pointed out the palaces of Ossolinsky and Konitzpolsky, palaces which were in size almost equal to the Radzeyovsky, finally the splendid Villa Regia. And then the sun went down, and the darkness of night began to fill the air. The thunder of guns was heard on the walls of Warsaw, and trumpets were sounded a considerable time and prolonged, in sign that the enemy was approaching. Sapieha also announced his coming by firing from muskets to give courage to the inhabitants, and that night he began to transport his army across the Vistula. First the louder squadron passed, second the squadron of Pan Kotvich, then Kmichitz's Tartars, then Vankovich's squadron. After that, 8,000 men. In this way, the Swedes, with their accumulated plunder, were surrounded and deprived of communication. But nothing remained to Sapieha except to wait till Charnyetsky from one side, and from the other Jan Kazimir with the hetmans of the kingdom, marched up, and meanwhile to see that no reinforcements stole through to the city. The first news came from Charnyetsky, but not over-favourable, for he reported that his troops and horses were so exhausted that at that moment he could not take part in the siege. From the time of the Battle of Varka, they were under fire day after day, and from the first months of the year they had fought 21 great battles with the Swedes, not counting the engagements of scouting parties and the attacks on smaller detachments. He had not obtained infantry in Pomerania and had not been able to advance to Danzig. He promised at most to hold in check with the rest of his forces that Swedish army which under the brother of the king, Rajivil, and Douglas was stationed at Narev and apparently was preparing to come to the aid of the besieged. The Swedes prepared for defence with the bravery and skill peculiar to them. They burned Praga before the arrival of Sapieha. They had begun already to throw bombs into all the suburbs, such as the Krakow and the Novishat, and on the other side against the church of St. Yerji and the Virgin Mary. Then houses, great buildings and churches flamed up. In the daytime, smoke rolled over the city like clouds, thick and dark. At night, those clouds became red, and bundles of sparks burst forth from them toward the sky. Outside the walls, crowds of people were wandering, without roofs over their heads, without bread. Women surrounded Sapieha's camp and cried for charity. People were seen as thin as pincers from hunger. Children were dying for want of food in the arms of emaciated mothers. The suburbs were turned into a veil of tears and misery. 
Sapieha, having neither infantry nor cannon, waited and waited for the coming of the king. Meanwhile, he aided the poor, sending them in groups to the less injured neighbourhoods in which they might survive in some way. He was troubled not a little when he foresaw the difficulties of the siege, for the skilled engineers of Sweden had turned Warsaw into a strong fortress. Behind the walls were 3,000 trained soldiers, led by able and experienced generals. On the whole, the Swedes passed as masters in besieging and defending great fortresses. To solace this trouble, Sapieha arranged daily feasts during which the goblets circled freely. For that worthy citizen and uncommon warrior had this failing. He loved company and the clatter of glasses above all things, and therefore neglected frequently service for pleasure. His diligence in the daytime he balanced by negligence at night. Till sunset he worked faithfully, sent out scouts, dispatched letters, inspected pickets himself, examined the informants brought in. But with the first star even fiddles were heard in his quarters. And when once he felt joyous, he permitted everything, sent for officers even though on guard or appointed to scouting expeditions, and was angry if any one failed to appear, since for him there was no feast without a throng. In the morning, Zagwaba reproached him seriously, but in the night, the servants bore Zagwaba himself without consciousness to Vordyovsky's quarters. Sapieha would make a saint fall, he explained next day to his friends. And what must happen to me, who have always been fond of sport? Besides, he has some kind of special passion to force goblets on me, and I, not wishing to seem rude, yield to his pressing. This I do to avoid offending the host, but I have made a vow that at the coming advent I shall have my back well covered with discipline, stripes, for I understand myself that this yielding cannot remain without penance. But now I have to keep on good terms with him, out of fear that I might fall into worse company and indulge myself altogether. There were officers who, without the eye of the hetman, accomplished their service, but some neglected it terribly in the evenings, as ordinary soldiers do when they feel no iron hand above them. The enemy was not slow to take advantage of this. Two days before the coming of the king and the hetmans, Sapieha arranged his most splendid feast, for he was rejoiced that all the troops were coming and that the siege would begin in earnest. All the best-known officers were invited. The hetman, ever in search of an opportunity, announced that the feast would be in honour of the king. To Kmichits, Zagwaba, Panyan, Pan Stanislav and Harwamp were sent special orders to come without fail, for the hetman wished to honour them particularly for their great services. Pan Andrei had just mounted his horse to go with a party, so that the orderly found the Tartars outside the gate. You cannot show the hetman disrespect and return rudeness for kindness, said the officer. Kmichits dismounted and went to ask advice of his comrades. This is dreadfully awkward for me, said he. I have heard that a considerable body of cavalry has appeared near Babitsi. The hetman himself commanded me to learn absolutely who they are, and now he asks me to the feast. What must I do? 
The hetman has sent an order to let Akbar Ulan go with the scouting party, answered the officer. An order is an order, said Zagwaba, and whoso is a soldier must obey. Be careful not to give an evil example, and besides, it would not be well for you to incur the ill will of the hetman. Say that and I will come, said Kmichits to the orderly. The officer went out. The Tartars rode off under Akbar Ulan, and Kmichits began to dress a little, and while dressing said to his comrades, Today there is a feast in honour of his royal grace. Tomorrow there will be one in honour of the hetmans of the kingdom, and so on to the end of the siege. Only let the king come, and this will be at an end, answered Vodiovsky. For though our gracious lord is fond of amusing himself in every trouble, still service must go on more diligently, since every man, and among others Pan Sapeha, will endeavour to show his zeal. We have had too much of this, too much. There is no question on that point, said Pan Yan. Is it not a wonder to you that such a laborious leader, such a virtuous man, such a worthy citizen, has this weakness? Just let night come, and straightway he is another person, and from a grand hetman turns into a reveller. But do you know why these banquets are not to my taste? asked Kmichits. It was the custom of Janusz Radzivil to have them almost every evening. Imagine that, as if by some wonder, whenever there was a banquet, Either some misfortune happened, some evil tidings came, or some new treason of the hetman was published. I do not know whether it was blind chance or an ordinance of God, but it is enough that evil never came except in time of a banquet. I tell you that at last it went so far that whenever they were setting the table the skin began to creep on us. True, as God is dear to me, added Harwamp, but it came from this, that the Prince Hetman chose that time to announce his intrigues with the enemy of the country. Well, said Zagwaba, at least we have nothing to fear from the honest Sapieha. If he will ever be a traitor, I am of as much value as my boot heel. There is nothing to be said on that point. He is as honest as bread without a raw spot, put in Pan Mihal. And what he neglects in the evening, he repairs in the daytime, added Harwamp. Then we will go, said Zagwaba, for to tell the truth I feel a void in my stomach. They went out, mounted their horses, and rode off, for Sapieha was on the other side of the city and rather far away. When they arrived at the headman's quarters they found in the yard a multitude of horses and a crowd of grooms, for whom a keg of beer had been set out, and who, as is usual, drinking without measure, had begun to quarrel. They grew quiet, however, at sight of the approaching knights, especially when Zagwaba fell to striking with the side of his sabre those who were in his way, and to crying with a stentorian voice, To your horses, rascals, to your horses! You are not the persons invited to the banquet! Sapieha received the officers as usual with open arms, and since he had been drinking a little with his guests, he began at once to tease Zagwaba. With the forehead, Lord Commander, said he. With the forehead, Lord Keeper, answered Zagwaba. If you call me that, said Sapieha, I will give you wine which is working yet. Very good, if it will make a tippler of a hetman. Some of the guests, hearing this, were alarmed, but Zagwaba, when he saw the hetman in good humour, 
permitted himself everything, and Sapieha had such a weakness for Zagwaba that he not only was not angry, but he held his sides and called those present to witness what he endured from that noble. Then began a noisy and joyous banquet. Sapieha drank to each guest separately, raised toasts to the king, the hetmans, the armies of both peoples, Poland and Lithuania, Pan Czarniecki, the whole commonwealth. Pleasure increased, and with it noise and talk. From toasts it came to songs. The room was filled with steam from the heads of the guests and the odour of mead and wines. From outside the windows came in no less of an uproar, and even the noise of steel. The servants had begun to fight with sabres. Some nobles rushed out to restore order, but they increased the confusion. Suddenly there rose a shout so great that the banqueters in the hall became silent. "'What is that?' asked one of the colonels. "'The grooms cannot make such an uproar as that.' "'Silence, gentlemen,' said the hetman, disturbed. "'Those are not ordinary shouts.' All at once the windows shook from the thunder of cannon and discharges of musketry. "'A sortie!' cried Vodiovsky. "'The enemy is advancing!' "'To horse!' to sabres. All sprang to their feet. There was a throng at the door, then a crowd of officers rushed to the yard, calling to their grooms for horses. But in the disturbance it was not easy for each one to find his own. Meanwhile, from beyond the yard, alarmed voices began to shout in the darkness, The enemy is advancing! Pan Kotvich is under fire! All rushed with what breath was in their horses to their squadrons, jumping over fences and breaking their necks in the darkness. An alarm began in the whole camp. Not all the squadrons had horses at hand, and those who had not began the uproar first of all. Throngs of soldiers on foot and on horseback struck against one another, not being able to come to order, not knowing who was a friend and who an enemy, shouting and roaring in the middle of the dark night. Some cried that the king of Sweden was advancing with his whole army. The Swedish sortie had really struck with a mighty impetus on Kotvich's men. Fortunately, being sick, he was not at the banquet, and therefore could offer some kind of immediate resistance. Still, it was not a long one, for he was attacked by superior numbers and covered with musketry fire, hence was forced to retreat. Oskierko came first to his assistance with his dragoons. They answered musketry fire with musketry fire, but neither could Oskierko's dragoons withstand the pressure, and in a moment they began to withdraw more and more hastily, leaving the ground covered with corpses. Twice did Oskierko endeavour to bring them to order, and twice was he beaten back, so that the soldiers could only cover their retreat by firing in groups. At last they scattered completely, but the Swedes pressed on like an irrepressible torrent toward the hetman's quarters. More and more regiments issued from the city to the field. After the infantry came cavalry. They brought out even field guns. It looked like a general battle, and it seemed as though the enemy sought one. Vavodiovsky, rushing from the hetman's quarters, met his own squadron, which was always in readiness, halfway, going toward the sound of the alarm and the shots. It was led by Roch Kowalski, who, like Kotvich, was not at the banquet, but Roch was not there because he had not been invited. 
Vorodiovsky gave orders to set fire with all speed to a couple of sheds so as to light up the field, and he hurried to the battle. On the road he was joined by Kmichits with his terrible volunteers, and that half of the Tartars which had not gone on the scouting expedition. Both came just in time to save Kotvich and Oskierko from utter disaster. The sheds had now blazed up so well that everything could be seen as at noontide. In this light the louder men, aided by Kmichits, struck the infantry regiments and, passing through their fire, took them on sabres. The Swedish cavalry sprang to assist their own men and closed mightily with the louder squadron. For a certain time they struggled exactly like two wrestlers who, seizing each other by the bodies, use their last strength. Now this one bends the other, and now the other bends this. But men fell so frequently in their ranks that at last the Swedes began to be confused. Kmichits, with his fighters, rushed into the thick of the struggle. Vovodyovsky, as usual, cleared an opening. Near him the two gigantic Skshetuskis fought, and Harwamp with Rokhkovalsky. The louder men emulated Kmichits's fighters, some shouting terribly, others, as the Butrims, rolling on in a body and in silence. New regiments rushed forward to the aid of the broken Swedes, but Vankovich, whose quarters were near Vorodyovsky's and Kmichits's, was a little later than they and supported them. At last the hetman led all the troops to the engagement and began to advance in order. A fierce battle sprang up along the whole line from Mokotov to the Vistula. Then Akbar Ulan, who had gone with the scouts, appeared on a foaming horse before the hetman. Effendi, cried he, a tramble of cavalry is marching from Babitsi to the city and convoying wagons. They wish to enter the gates. Sapieha understood in one moment what that sortie in the direction of Mokotov meant. The enemy wished to draw away troops on the meadow road, so that that auxiliary cavalry and provision train might enter the gates. Run to Vovodyovsky, cried the hetman to Akbar Ulan. Let the louder squadron, Kmichits and Vankovich, stop the road. I will send them reinforcements at once. Akbar Ulan put spurs to his horse. After him flew one and a second and a third orderly. All rushed to Vorodyovsky and repeated the order of the hetman. Vorodyovsky turned his squadron immediately. Kmichits and the Tartars caught up with him. Going across the field, they shot on together and Vankovich after them. But they arrived too late. Nearly two hundred wagons had entered the gate. A splendid detachment of cavalry following them was almost within radius of the fortress. Only the rear guard, composed of about one hundred men, had not come yet under cover of the artillery, but these two were going with all speed. The officer, riding behind, urged them on. Kmichits, seeing them by the light of the burning shed, gave forth such a piercing and terrible shout that the horses at his side were frightened. He recognised Boguslav's cavalry, that same which had ridden over him and his Tartars at Yanov. Mindful of nothing, he rushed like a madman toward them, passed his own men and fell first blindly among their ranks. Fortunately, the two Kiemlichis, Kosma and Damien, sitting on the foremost horses, rode with him. 
At that moment, Vorodyovsky struck the flank like lightning and with this one blow cut off the rearguard from the main body. Cannon began to thunder from the walls, but the main division, sacrificing their comrades, rushed in with all speed after the wagons. Then the Laudermen and Kmichitz's forces surrounded the rearguard as with a ring, and a merciless slaughter began. But it was of short duration. Bogusław's men, seeing that there was no rescue on any side, sprang from their horses in a moment, threw down their weapons, and shouted with sky-piercing voices, heard in the throng and the uproar, that they surrendered. Neither the volunteers nor the Tartars regarded their shouts, but hewed on. At this moment was heard the threatening and shrill voice of Wodiowski, who wanted informants. Stop! Stop! Take them alive! Take them alive! cried Kmichitz. The biting of steel ceased. The Tartars were commanded to bind the enemy, and with the skill peculiar to them they did this in a twinkle. Then the squadrons pushed back hastily from the cannon fire. The colonels marched toward the sheds, the louder men in advance, Vankovich in the rear, and Kmichitz with the prisoners in the centre, all in perfect readiness to repulse attack should it come. Some of the Tartars led prisoners on leashes, others of them led captured horses. Kmichitz, when he came near the sheds, looked carefully into the faces of the prisoners to see if Boguswav was among them, for though one of them had sworn under a sword point that the prince was not in the detachment, still Kmichitz thought that perhaps they were hiding him purposely. Then some voice from under the stirrup of a Tartar cried to him, Pan Kmichitz, Colonel, rescue an acquaintance, give command to free me from the rope on parole. Hassling, cried Kmichitz. Hassling was a Scot, formerly an officer in the cavalry of the Voivoda of Vilno, whom Kmichitz knew in Kedane, and in his time loved much. Let the prisoner go free, cried he to the Tartar, and down from the horse yourself. The Tartar sprang from the saddle as if the wind had carried him off, for he knew the danger of loitering when the Bagadir commanded. Hassling, groaning, climbed into the Tartar's lofty saddle. Kmichitz then caught him above the palm, and pressing his hand as if he wished to crush it, began to ask insistently, Whence do you come? Tell me quickly, whence do you come? For God's sake, tell quickly. From Taurogi, answered the officer. Kmichitz pressed him still more. But, Panana Bilevich, is she there? She is. Pan Andrei spoke with still greater difficulty, for he pressed his teeth still more closely. And what has the prince done with her? He has not succeeded in doing anything. Silence followed. After a while, Kmichitz removed his lynx-skin cap, drew his hand over his forehead and said, I was struck in the battle, blood is leaving me, and I have grown weak. End of chapter 37. Recording by David Granville Young.